Let's turn to Paul the Apostle's greatest work, the book of Romans. Chapter 3 tonight. We started last week. It's always sort of the case, isn't it? We start a couple verses and don't finish it because of the time. But tonight we're in chapter 3, book of Romans. You know, I think I grew up a pretty typical American kid, listening to pretty typical American nursery rhymes. And... Uh, it struck me one day just how, well, violent, kind of raunchy the nursery rhymes that we grew up on really are. I started singing the words and I listened to them and I thought, man, that's horrible. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, that's his head, and Jill came tumbling after. So they're great. We have a story about a kid who gets a <clears throat> skull fracture great for kids to meditate on. Then of course there's a rockabye baby in the treetop. When the wind blows the cradle will rock. When the bough breaks the cradle will fall and down will come baby cradle and all. Not too comforting for a mother to sing. But there is one nursery rhyme that I think is a good description of the human race. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't, you remember, couldn't put Humpty back together again. Mankind has had a great fall. That's the theme of the first three chapters of Romans. A great fall indeed. And that is the kind of fall that puts all people in the human race under the wrath of God. That's the first great theme of the book of Romans. The wrath of God followed quickly, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, by the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God. And so we're sort of at that hinge point tonight. The wrath is the sentence that is upon all mankind and then followed by the grace of God. When you look at the world in which you live, I think everybody comes to some place in their life where they see the mess and they think, now, what's the origin of all this? How did we get into this mess? Where did it all begin? Of course, we know the answer. It began with great-great-great-grandpa Adam, who made a real dumb choice. And he infected mankind with a disease that is incurable, except for one cure only, and God provided the cure, the antidote, his son. There's a lot of talk these days in our country about the health care system. It is in disrepair. There are problems with it. You know, it's still the greatest system in the world. I've been to hospitals in other parts of the world as far as the system, but it, it does have its problems. But there is a disease that is both hereditary, that is passed on from person to person, generation to generation, and it is fatal, and that is sin. The very thing that people don't want to discuss, and I should say the churches sort of want to leave out these days, is the very thing we need to get a firm grasp on, just to see how bad it is, so that we can see how great God's plan of salvation is. That's why I love the writings of Paul. He tells it like it is. The book of Romans really is Paul's greatest work in terms of theology. It is an entire treatise, several chapters on the condition of man, the grace of God, the plan and the will of God, and then the plan of God throughout the history of the world. I think everybody, deep down, and I say deep down, some people have to dig deeper than others, but deep down we know that we're sinners. We know that there's a problem. And we know that we need cleansing. Years ago in Chicago, when Dwight L. Moody was the pastor of Moody Bible Church, and he became rather famous and was invited to speak different places, one of the churches he was invited to speak had a reputation, and the pastor told Moody before he went out to speak, he said, now, 
Just a warning that some of these people will get up and leave before the sermon is even finished. Just a warning. So Moody smiled, walked out to the pulpit, and he announced his message. He said, this morning, I'm going to address sinners and then saints. Now, we know, as we saw last week and the week before, that those are the two categories. All men are saints all or sinners. And a saint is a sinner saved by grace. So he said, I'm going to address, first of all, sinners, and then I'm going to address the saints. So he started getting into his message, and he said, Now, I'm finished talking to all the sinners, so if you're a sinner and you'd like to leave now, you can get up and go. <laughs> the rest of this message is for God's people as saints. Pastor said that was the only morning that everyone remained seated for the entire message. Nobody wanted to admit that they were a sinner. Well, we have seen in the first two chapters and a few verses that we've gotten into chapter 3 that Paul paints the black picture that everyone is a sinner and the possibility that everyone can become a saint. Paul was a rabbi, and being rabbinically trained, he would know that there would be rebuttal to some of the statements that he would make. And so sort of in a question-and-answer format, he presupposes what the rebuttal is going to be. And so he weaves his case, and he asks a hypothetical question followed by an answer, another hypothetical question followed by more answers, and he follows this format. In chapter 3, verse 1, What advantage, then, has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now he just said there's no difference, Jew, Gentile, no matter who you are, we're all under the death sentence, all under the wrath of God. So you may even be circumcised, he says, to the religious Jew. That doesn't count unless your heart's right with God. And so he presupposes somebody's going to ask, so what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any advantage at all? What's the big deal about circumcision? And he answers the question, much, in every way. First of all, because to them, the Jewish people were committed, the oracles, the scriptures, the words of God. Now there was a distinction between Jew and Gentile, especially in the mind of the Jew. This was a big issue. The Jewish person grew up being taught, you are the chosen people of God. God has a special plan for the nation of Israel. God gave us the scriptures. God gave us the prophets. God gave us the law. A Jewish person, in hearing the words of Paul in chapter 2, would question that. Because what about the distinction? There was that distinction even in the New Testament. Jesus said to his disciples, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now he would send them to the Gentiles later, but at first it was to go to the Jew because that's where the plan of God originally came. And then Jesus, when he had a conversation with the woman at the well at Samaria, and she said, now, you Jews keep saying Jerusalem is like the place to worship. And our fathers have always taught that here at Mount Gerizim, that's the place to worship. Jesus said, well, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, period. In other words, if you want to get into the favor of God... You might be a Gentile living in another nation, or you might be a Samaritan worshiping at Mount Gerizim, but there's only one way to come, and that is through the revelation that God has given originally to the Jewish people. That was his plan. You remember the story of Ruth? She was a Moabitess. She came to a decision in her life after her husband died, after her father-in-law died, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, is going back to Bethlehem across the Jordan River. She makes a decision to convert she wants to know God, but that means a conversion into Judaism. Your people shall be my people, she says. Your God shall be my God. She knew the distinction that was held. So, this is a heavy question. 
What advantage then has the Jew? Much in every way, chiefly to them were committed the oracles of God. Now we kind of covered that last week, the word of God. And what, what he is saying is this. There is no difference as far as sin is concerned. There is no difference as far as the need is concerned between Jew and Gentile. But there is a difference in advantage. You have the edge. You have the scriptures. You have the enlightenment. You have already been taught the Messiah is coming. You've been taught the principles of atonement. They're in your scriptures. You have an advantage. Much in every way. Now, I do want to touch on this before we move on quickly into the rest of the chapter, and that is a mistake is often made when it comes to the Jewish people when people start saying that all of the promises that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament do not now apply to the Jews anymore because they sinned and that all the promises made to Israel nationally are now all fulfilled in the church. That's a mistake. We are the spiritual seed of Abraham, but God has a distinct plan that he promised to Abraham, a covenant, and to Isaac and to Jacob. In fact, Paul will belabor this point, trust me, when we get to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. He'll go through the whole fact that God has a national plan in the future for the Jewish nation, literally, not figuratively, literally. But... There is a teaching called amillennialism that says all of the promises in the Old Testament are no good for the Jews. They all apply to, in a spiritual sense, to the believer. And so everything is spiritualized. Added to that, there is a teaching known as British Israelism. And British Israelism says that the original ten tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, have all been lost, but they all resettled in Europe and the Anglo-Saxon race is the offspring of the ten tribes of Israel that settled in Europe. And when they settled throughout, dispersed the diaspora through Europe, they left their names there. You can still see traces of them. For instance, the Danube River and the Danish people. It's the remnants of the tribe of Dan. And you see Ish is the uh, Hebrew word for man. That is true. It is. And so you see you have Dan-ish, Dan's man. You know, that's the tribe of Dan. And so you see that through the Anglo-Saxon race, British, Finn-ish. Of course, you also have fool-ish. <laughs> and Paul will show how fool-ish it is toward the end of this book. That God makes a distinction eschatologically in the future when he draws the difference between his plan for the church and for national Israel, fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, he will say in chapter 11, verse 25, blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles are come in. Then all of Israel shall be saved. And we'll discuss what that means when we get to it. Verse 3, for what if some did not believe? Here comes this hypothetical question again, a different one this time. For what if some, that is Jewish people, did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Now if you read... Not even, I was going to say read carefully. If you read at all the Old Testament, you find quickly that the history of the nation of Israel is a history of failure. God said in Deuteronomy, do this, do that, and if you do it, you'll live, and you'll stay in the land, and blah, 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 and if you don't do this, you'll be out of the land, and here's the curses that will happen. And then he says, by the way, when you're kicked out of your land, like I know this is going to happen, and I know when you're in Babylon, you're going to be crying out to me, and when you do, I'll bring you back. And so he anticipates their failure, but promises his own faithfulness in lieu of their failure. I've been reading in my own personal devotional time, Second Chronicles, Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, basically. And so many of them started out right, ended up in failure. Some started outright and stayed right. Some started in failure, ended up right. 
A lot of them were just plain failures. King Ahaz in the south. King Ahab in the north. King Jeroboam, when the kingdom originally split in the north. Ahaziah, Amaziah, all of these kings that brought reproach to the nation of Israel. Or how about the time of Judges, when every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you follow the chronicles and the kings up until the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And you look at these people, this nation, you think, boy, God was right, stiff-necked, stubborn. It's a history of failure, yet... Though there were many who did not believe and failed God, that does not negate the promises of God. God still says, I'll bring you back, and I will send a deliverer. I will send a redeemer. I will make a new covenant one day with the house of Israel. So the unfaithfulness of Israel does not negate the faithfulness of God, and that is seen readily over and over again in spite of their unbelief. Now, in verse 4, Paul is quoting a familiar psalm, a psalm of David, Psalm 51. Do you remember that psalm? Do you know what that's about? It's right after he sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was found out by the prophet Nathan, and he writes this psalm of repentance. And he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and committed this evil in your sight. And then he says this, That you may be justified in your words, and overcome when you are judged. In other words, Lord, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. It's interesting, though, that he said against you and you only, because he did sin against Bathsheba. He did sin against Uriah, her husband. He did sin against the whole nation because he lost the battle. He did sin against himself because he was not allowed to build the temple after that. But principally, he sinned against God, and he follows it up with this verse that Paul quotes, saying, in other words, Lord, if you judge me, you are absolutely right to do it. I've sinned. I've been wrong. I've committed adultery. So you are justified when you judge. Even though I have been unfaithful, you can judge because you are faithful, and your promises still remain in judgment and in peace and righteousness. Verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Paul anticipates that there may be somebody reading this or listening to this who would accuse God of using the Jewish people to his own advantage to make himself look good. Look at these creeps. They've sinned against me. Well, look at you've raised the bar so high. And you're making yourself look good because of their own unbelief and their own failure. So is it right that you would even judge somebody for their imperfection? You could look at a guy like Judas. The Old Testament predicts that he would fall predicts that he would fail, predicts that he would do what he did to Jesus, betray him. Jesus predicted it. Did Jesus know what Judas would do when Jesus chose Judas among the twelve? Absolutely. Well then, it's sort of unfair to judge Judas for what happened. It's sort of predicted he knew it all along. The folly with that, of course, is that you are denying the fundamental substance of sin. In and of itself, it is wrong. It is sinful. You can't, you can't bypass that issue. And so he says, certainly not. For then how would God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? If God doesn't have a right to judge us merely because our sin reveals his grace, then how could God judge anybody? But the truth is, God will judge the world. Why? Because we read last week, when God judges, he knows all of the motivations of the heart, the hidden parts. It's a complete, total knowledge. And thus, he's the only one capable of making a judgment. And why not say, verse 8, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, somebody were, people were actually accusing Paul of saying this. 
as we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, here's what Paul says about them, their condemnation is just. People were accusing Paul of preaching a gospel against the law of God, this free grace stuff. Paul, you're giving them an incentive to sin. And so the question really in verse 7 and answered in verse 8 is this. If my being bad makes God look good, then how, why don't I just get really, really bad and make him look really, really good? And I like the way Paul answered it. He just sort of bypasses it and says their condemnation is just. Now, with that in mind, let me just tell you about what I've noticed with some. And, and I have one particular person in mind, none of you would know, it's from my youth when I first became a Christian. But this kid, he was a young guy, he was an early teenager, and he would hear all of our testimonies, how bad we were before we came to Christ. And I do have a problem with some testimony meetings when people try to paint the worst possible picture and spend most of the time making people go, ooh, ah, about their past sin, and just a little snippet of, oh, yes, and then I was saved. Almost as if you're glorifying the past. Well, this guy would hear all these testimonies and think, man, I don't have a very good testimony. I was raised a good kid all my life. I was raised in a Christian home. He said, you know, I almost think that I should go out and sow some wild oats just so that I could have a powerful testimony. The greatest testimony is the keeping power of God. The greatest testimony I've ever heard was a testimony like his. I was raised in a Christian home, and I stayed true to my God through all the peer pressure. I didn't go that way. I didn't go that way. I didn't become a drug addict or an alcoholic or I wasn't in jail. I walked true with God, and God is able to keep you from youth through teenage years, through college, into adulthood. That's the great testimony. That sort of this argument, though, played out in that young man's mind. By the way, a note. Whenever you find someone attacking the justice of God, they are making a statement by their attack. They are assuming that their justice is better. It is actually a statement of pride. They're, they're claiming a superior justice. They're exalting themselves. Well, that's not fair. Oh, so you've got all the answers. We should let you judge the world, right? You are saying that your system is more valid, more fair, more just, more righteous than God's. So that person elevates himself above God. And by the way, that was the very theme of the devil from the beginning, was to elevate himself above God, challenging the word of God. Keep that in mind next time you're tempted to say things like, how could a God of love do that? How could a God of love create hell or send anybody to hell or whatever? That is to disregard the very justice of God, right? God is loving, yes. But if there is no justice, then God is amoral, non-moral, immoral. And if God is immoral, God is not loving. He has to be just in order to maintain the fact that he loves. There has to be justice. Now, beginning in verse 9, and especially in verse 10, but you notice how it's written. It's written by taking lots of different scripture from the Old Testament, and if you have a, a version of the Bible that sort of indents it, it's showing you that these are quotes from the Old Testament stacked one on top of the other. And what this is, is Paul the rabbi pulling out from his knowledge of the Old Testament the indictment against humanity. It's the, the final leveling of the gavel. He just spent time in chapter 1 and 2 saying, okay, let's talk about paganism in general. Okay, then let's switch and talk about the moral person. Okay, let's switch and talk about the religious person. He covers all three groups. And he shows that individually all, all are guilty. Now with one fell swoop, once again, this condemnation, the gavel comes down of the wrath of God. You might look at it that Paul is taking you to God's clinic. And you are having an x-ray of your heart, the inside of who you really are. He strips the robes of your own self-righteousness off so that you're standing naked. By the end of this chapter, if you see yourself in this chapter, it's like, man, 
all that I thought was really cool, that was uh, really important in my life, you know, it's, it's gone. The emperor's new clothes, I'm naked. So that, beginning in verse 21, he can take you into the throne room and clothe you with God's righteousness. But you have to see yourself as naked before you can really appreciate the new garb, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, let me just tell you a cute little story, a true story. I've heard it on a few different occasions, read it on a few different sources. Um, a long time ago, in, uh, in the early days of photography, when cameras were scarce, not everybody had the point-and-shoot little flash red-eye thing that everybody has now. Cameras were scarce, and to have your picture taken was, you know, something special. There was an evangelist in Glasgow, Scotland, who used to carry his Bible around in a leather pouch that looked just like a Kodak vest camera pouch. Carried it around his neck, and he'd walk around the streets, and people would see, thought he had a camera, and said, oh, excuse me, would you take our picture? They could be on a honeymoon, or they could be renewing their vows, or they would want him to take their picture. Could you take our picture? And the evangelist would say, oh, I already have your picture. And they said, what? Yeah, I already have your picture. I have the picture of the whole human race, in fact. And they, their curiosity was piqued, and so he'd take out his Bible, and he'd start reading these verses. And imagine how a person would be arrested when beginning in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have altogether turned aside, have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he closed the book. There's your picture. That's how God sees humanity apart from himself. In verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jew and Greeks. Now get this. Are all under what? Sin. It's an important word. It's all over the Bible, even though it's not mentioned in a lot of churches today. It's mentioned 49 times in this book alone, the book of Romans, and this is the first usage of the word sin. We're familiar with what it means, but let's have a little refresher course. It's the Greek word harmatia. It's a term from the archery world. It simply means to miss the mark. God puts up his target, and everybody, no matter how clever they are at aiming their little bow and arrow, the arrow falls short of the target. Everyone. Some are better sinners than others. That is, somebody, some people really get off the mark. Some people are worse sinners than others. That is, they get really close to the mark, but all have fallen short of the mark. Let's say that we're all on a nice Caribbean cruise. Wouldn't that be great? Or an Alaskan cruise. It's summertime. And we're going up, enjoying the scenery, and we have a Titanic experience. We hit an iceberg. The boat starts to sink. And let's say there's, well, there's all of us, but let's say there's, you know, uh, three types of people. We have the professional athlete swimmer, right? You're, you're trained to swim. You're an expert. You've, you've won awards for swimming. And then next to you is the group of trained athlete but not professional swimmer. You've just worked out and you're in good shape. And then next to you is sort of couch potato, Joe Average American, never really gets any exercise, you know, love handles a whole bit. Um, th the boat goes down. You can see the shore, but it's quite a distance off. You all start swimming. We all start swimming to the shore. Who's going to go down first? Number three, couch potato goes down first, right? He gives it his best shot, but he can't make it to the shore. Trained athlete, non-professional swimmer, but the guy has a good workout or gal, goes a little bit further, does pretty good, but eventually runs out of fuel, runs out of energy, drowns. Professional swimmer beats them both. but. Still, it's a little further out of range than that person thought, and that person ends up drowning, oh, just yards from the shore. Now, you might say, well, that person did a much better job. Yeah, but you know what? They're all dead. <laughs> they have all fallen short of the mark. They've all missed the mark. 
They haven't quite made it. Jew, Gentile, we've charged. Everyone is under sin. Mankind is under that horrible disease state called sin. We are sinners by nature and by choice. That's the theological way to put it, by nature and by choice, by imputation. It's been passed on through Adam. And by volition, we choose things that are wrong. We're sinners by nature and by choice. All are under sin. As it is written, as it is written. I'm stopping right there on purpose. This is a Bible study, and we give our attention to what is written. And so does Paul the Apostle. When Paul makes a point, he doesn't just think, you know, I sort of feel in my heart that the way it ought to be and the way God is, no, he goes, that's irrelevant. It's irresp- it doesn't matter. As it is written, everything is backed up with the inspired, inerrant word of God. He uses that phrase quite frequently. Why? Because Paul has a love for the scripture, believing it to be the word of God. And one thing is obvious from reading Romans, he has a grasp of scripture. He has a grasp of it. In these next few verses, he's quoting from Psalm 14, the book of Isaiah, the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and a couple other psalm phrases. He knows it quite well, and he sort of stacks it all up and makes his theological treatise of what the Old Testament says about mankind. He loves the scripture, so it's important to notice and to be able to say, for it is written, or as it is written. Peter does this. The day of Pentecost, you remember, they're all speaking in tongues, and and Jews from all over the world are gathered, and one of them asks the obvious question, what is this? And Peter says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophets, who said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men, your old men, blah, blah. He quotes the scripture. One of Jesus' favorite phrases was, for it is written, right? He's tempted, Matthew chapter 4, outside of Jericho on the Mount of Temptation in the Judean wilderness. And Satan comes to him. And Satan says, first of all, hey, since you're the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Jesus says, as it is written, or it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, he quotes the scripture. So then Satan sort of said, okay, well, I can quote scripture too. So he says, hey, well, um, takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down, for it is written. He will give his angels charge over you that they might bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Now, he does take it out of context, and he doesn't quote the rest of the scripture. But Jesus says, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. His rebuttal is all based in scripture. Then Satan shows them in an instant the kingdoms of the world. Says, hey, you know what? If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these for their mind to give. I can give them to whosoever I will. Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. All three times his rebuttal was, it is written. I say that because so should our practice be bathed in the scripture. When you ask people, well, why do you do that? Well, we've always done it that way. And because Satan does hate the word of God, anything that is of God, Satan would naturally hate being the arch enemy of the divine. He would hate the word of God and would love to supersede the word of God with man's tradition or man's opinion or man's feelings or whatever. But it's important, oh, Christian, that you be able to say, for it is written. Read the Bible through get, and get a grasp of the principles of Scripture. I'm not talking about proof texting. I think it's a nasty thing we get into. Proof texting. We find a little text that supports our view. You can find anything to do that. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, every cultist can find a phrase or a twisted verse out of context to support their view. But that's different from the grand principles of the Scripture. And Paul stacks them up one on one to an airtight case for the judgment of God before he gets into the the grace of God. Okay, we're coming to God's view of mankind. This is important. 
You've, some of you have taken anthropology courses in college. This is God's anthropology. God's anthropology. God's view of mankind apart from redemption, and thus the need for redemption. You know, th there's a big difference between a worm eye view and, say, a view in a 747 aircraft 50,000 feet in the air. To a worm, you look very impressive. Worm would see you walk up to his little worm area. He'd look up at you and go, wow. When I was just a little toddler, I remember going into the kitchen. And I could walk right under the little table that pulled out the little bread counter. I could go under it, and then I'd look up at my mom, and I'd think, she is huge. She's like the biggest woman in the world. Of course, I'd only met one. Wow. Now, my mother measured her today. She's five foot one. And I look at it a little bit differently now. I look down at her, being six foot five. But up then, I thought, wow. Now, uh, you know what it's like if you've ever been to Manhattan, you've seen the Empire State Building, the World Trade Center, or Paris, the Eiffel Tower, or the Parthenon on top of, uh, in Athens. Huge. But if you've ever flown over those cities in an aircraft, they look like little toys. In the college courses in anthropology, they give you the worm's eye view of man. But now we get God's scoop. This is God's anthropology. His view of anthropos, of man. And it's the view from 50,000 feet. And it's a smaller view than the worm's eye view. And we get, we get a very important truth out of all this. It's called total depravity. It's one of the grand doctrines of the scripture. It's one of the things that most people today, our society, does not believe in at all. That mankind, by nature, is absolutely, totally depraved. Understand what that means. It doesn't mean incapable of doing any good. Some of the most depraved people are capable of doing the most wonderful things. It doesn't mean that a person is as bad as he could be. It means a person is as bad off as he can be. See the difference? It's a judicial thing. It doesn't mean that you're vile and angry and murderous. It means you're as bad off. You, you may do wonderful things apart from Christ, but none of them are good enough to hit the mark. That's depravity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we, we get to it now in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, remember what the word righteous means. Paul has in his mind, no doubt, the very basic meaning of the word, which means to be right with God. There is no one, naturally, who is right with God. There is no one who is as God intended him to be. Though people may be doing wonderful things, certain moral things, even the most vile person can sometimes do wonderful things. Paul is not speaking of specific acts or general patterns, but he is speaking more than that of man's inner character, apart from redemption, depravity. No one who has ever lived in his inmost being is right enough for God. We've missed the mark. What's the standard? Jesus Christ. He's the only, he's the only perfect person. He, he lived the perfect life you and I could never live. He died a sacrificial death for you, and all of that can be imputed freely to you who believe. He's the only one who can do it. Now, whenever we compare ourselves with each other, we can feel pretty good. Because you know what? I can always find somebody worse than I am. And uh, there's something perverse in human nature. We, we sort of gloat whenever we see somebody do something bad or wrong. Oh, it makes us feel good. Oh, you know, I'm better than that person. I like that person. They make me look good. But when you start comparing yourself with what Paul said in Ephesians to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, ugh, you go from worm's eye view to 50,000 feet in the air view, right? It's very, very different when you compare yourself to the standard, God's standard, not the shifting standard of man. 
There is none, verse 11, who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Now that's interesting. Nobody is seeking God. Have you ever heard people referred to as seekers? Oh, they're seeking God. There's none who seeks God. You remember what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve? As soon as Adam sinned, did he go out and seek God? He hid. He ran from God. What was the very first question God ever asked in Scripture? Adam, where are you? It was God seeking man. Years ago, I don't know if any of you will remember this. It was in the 70s. There was a big campaign that was launched, a Christian campaign, and it was put on bumper stickers and T-shirts. It was called, I Found It. Some of you will remember those bumper stickers. I remember seeing, driving around, I found it. I'm thinking, I found what? And it was a yellow bumper sticker, big black letters, exclamation point, I found it. It, of course, was God. And it was meant to be this nebulous idea so that people would ask, well, what is it you found? And they'd say, I found a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it was neat. I'm, people came to Christ. But when, when I asked that question, and they said, I found God. I was a young believer, so I would say certain things that were maybe not always the, the most tactful. They said, I found God. I said, excuse me, I didn't know God was lost. But if you think about it, God finds you. You don't find God. And even the language of, have you accepted Christ? No, I think Christ accepts you. You may receive him, and I don't want to be very semantical here about this, except to say that no one seeks after God. Now, if you look at the myriad of world religions out there and the millions of adherents to all of these different belief systems, you may conclude there's a whole lot of people seeking God. No, they're not. They're not seeking God. Every man-made religion is basically an attempt to escape from the real, true God. And some people say, well, Christianity is just good men made all that up. Really? Good men wrote the Bible? Yeah, good men. Would good men concoct a religion that condemns everyone? That doesn't sound like a humanistic religion. Everyone is condemned apart from one man, Christ. So all are lost, nobody is seeking after God, and just the fact that you might feel in your heart that desire, but, but I am seeking God. God put that there. Because Jesus said, nobody can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. If you have any inclination at all to know who God is or to have the guilt in your life removed, it's because God, the Holy Spirit, through the Father, that he is drawing you something God put in your heart. And you can stop short of a relationship with God by a man-made religion and call that, oh, I found God. No, you haven't. Keep going. God put that in, that desire for you to come to know him. But it's God who draws you. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. The word turned aside is a Greek term that means to lean in the wrong direction. It is a military term originally that speaks of a soldier in the middle of the battle running the wrong way. In other words, defecting. We were born on a detour. We were born going away from God. As Isaiah the prophet said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We remember in the book of Acts that the early church was sometimes called the way, right? The, the gospel of the early church was called the way. And uh, people who were involved in the church were sometimes called in the book of Acts the followers of the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is a way, and that's, there's only the way. Of course, Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. So we were all born on a detour. All we like sheep have gone astray. He says, then uh, they have become, together become unprofitable. A better translation or a literal translation would be overripe, spoiled, sour. 
Have you ever had the experience that I've had of going to the refrigerator for a nice ice cold glass of milk? Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to be refreshed. And you take it down. It's like, oh, it's soured. It's not what you anticipated. Of course, it sort of gives it away when you see little things floating in it. You should stop right there, but sometimes we don't see it. There is none who does good. No, not one. You say, oh, wait a minute. I know a lot of people who are unbelievers, and they do good things. Yes. Mankind, even apart from God, is capable of achieving great things, great achievements, great uh, works of philanthropy, great works of mercy, etc. But that's different from divine goodness. Example. Jesus one day had a young man came up to him. He's called the rich young ruler in the Bible. And the guy comes up and just sort of pours on the adulation. Good master, he says. Good teacher. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? So he used the word good twice in the same sentence. Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? That's an interesting comeback. There is no one who is good except for God, he said. Now, he's saying one of two things by that, by the way. He's saying, I'm no good or I am God. You call me good. You recognize something. Why do you call me good? There's only one good. That's God. Now, that's, it's, it's interesting that Jesus said, there is no one that is good except God. So when you say, oh, he's a good person, that's a floating standard. God's standard of goodness is there's only one who is good, and that's God. So when you define goodness, if you define it biblically, you have to start with God. God is good. And everything measured to that would be less than that. So when it says, there is none who does good, no, not one, put it in that context, you understand. C.S. Lewis beautifully put it, no arrangement of bad eggs can make a good omelet. I don't care how you crack them, how you fry them, if they're bad eggs, they're not good, they're not going to make a good omelet. God created man in mint condition. Satan came and vandalized him. So now when you look at mankind, though we are imago dei in the image of God, it's a marred image. It's not what God originally intended. It's been marred by sin. Um, when I was a kid, my dad used to take us up to... Um, Wyoming every now and then. We'd drive from California and we'd stop at the Grand Tetons. Some of the most beautiful scenery on planet Earth. At the base of the Grand Tetons is a uh, beautiful lake called Jackson Lake. And sometimes early in the morning, that lake is so perfectly clear, pristine, and calm, glassy. It is a perfect mirror of the Grand Tetons from the lodge in the lake. You can see the mountains and then you see the mirror image of it as if it is a mirror laid out in front of you perfect image of the mountains. But if you were to go down to the shore and take a nice little flat stone and just get the right angle on it, skip it out there, throw it out, you'd see little ripples. You'd see the image of the Tetons marred throughout the lake. That's exactly what sin has done. When Adam committed the first sin, the image of God in man became marred. Oh, you can make it out. There are some days you can really see God. There's a lot of days you don't. The image of God is there, but it's a marred image. That's why Paul said when we were born in this world, we were born dead on arrival, right? Isn't that what he said? Dead in trespasses and sins. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Every child born into the world has an inborn bent towards something evil. Ask any parent this question. Now, if you're single, you might act very theological and disagree. But if you're a parent, you go, oh, yes. I've never yet met a parent who says, oh, but my child is such a perfect angel that I've actually had to teach it a couple of bad things to do just to make it normal. <laughs> I've never met a parent say that. There's this inborn, innate tendency or bent to evil. It's pervasive throughout humanity. So that with the standard of God is good, there's no one who does good. No, not one. Sometimes, um, I've been known to uh, play tricks. And one of the tricks I played on a 
well, if I say a friend of mine, you'll question my ability to be a friend, but uh, on a couple of people is while we were at a meal and they got up and went to the restroom and came back, I poured salt in their water, just doused it with salt, mixed it up, and you know, by the time they came back, it was cleared, so it looked the same. And then they would take a big gulp of it, you know, and then they'd get thirstier. And um, That salt, I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, <laughs> every bit of that water, every bit of it was tainted with the salt. It's not like, well, there's more at the top, more at the bottom. Once it's mixed all together, like, like ocean water, it's impure. No matter what you do at that table, at that meal, no matter what part you drink from, it's all going to be tainted. It's marred. It doesn't fit the original design. Verse 13, uh, we now get into uh, the doctor takes us into the clinic and says, open your mouth wide. Um, stick out your tongue. Remember the doctor doing that? Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Jesus said something very interesting, didn't he? He said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can always tell what's really in the heart of a person. It eventually comes out in their speech. And so a person will, in anger, say something, and they go, oh, I don't know why I said that. That wasn't me. Yeah, it was the real you. You've been able to have that beautiful veneer for only so long, but the person who harbors grudge and bitterness and anger, eventually... It's going to come out. The person who engages in lustful activity, eventually it will come out in lewd words. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, with looking at what they say, with their tongues they practice deceit, the poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, does that, this was written a couple thousand years ago. Does that sound very up-to-date? like our generation. In fact, listen to this description of a generation from the book of Proverbs and see if this isn't contemporary. Proverbs 30, verse 14. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. It sounds like we got it out of the newspaper. This is the description. One research group did a survey of primetime television, taking the shows on primetime television on ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox Network, and found those words that were once banned altogether from television are now spoken once every five minutes at primetime on all of those networks, whose mouth is full of cursing, and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. That's interesting and very truthful. The way of peace they have not known. Never before has there been a generation that has spoken so much of peace than this one. And yet, according to Will Duran in his great book, Lessons from History, said, quote, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. In the last 3,100 years, 8,000 formal peace treaties have been broken. The way of peace they have not known. We are a violent species. We are. That's the nature of mankind. Try as you will to curb that. Look at the conflicts worldwide in almost, well, so every continent. A professor from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, his name is Arnold Barnett, said that a child born today in one of the large cities in the United States of America, according to him, has a chance of one in 50 of being murdered. And he said what that means is a baby born today is more likely to be murdered than the American who was on the battlefront in World War II. That's quite a statistic. A one in 50 chance of surviving. That's why when people say, you're going to Israel? You're taking a tour to Israel? That's dangerous. It's dangerous to be in Albuquerque. <laughs> in fact, I think it's more dangerous with the crime rate in this city than it is to be in Jerusalem. I'll let my son and wife walk the streets in almost any city in Israel at night. 
but I wouldn't let them walk here. And you know why? It's pr principally because wherever you go, you see soldiers carrying guns. You go into a restaurant, you see there's always somebody on duty, everywhere, with a gun. They know the truth about human nature. That if you just take away all the arms and get rid of it all, that we won't be nice little people and behave. Somebody that has the advantage will come in and kill other people, terrorists. They live with it all the time. This is the nature of mankind. And here's the root issue, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Bingo. That's where it all starts. What did Solomon say? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God, he said, also is the beginning of knowledge. Does that mean that we're to cower every time you mention the name God? No, the word fear of God, Hebrew, yirat Yahweh, means a reverential awe that produces a humble submission to a loving God. That's what it means. A reverential awe that produces a humble submission to a loving God. It's the very same word in the Old Testament when it says, Children, respect, fear, honor your parents. Respect them. Obey them. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You look around at our culture. That, that's, that sort of sums it up. There's no fear of God. This is a me generation. This is very anthropocentric, man-centered. The slogans that we toss around, love yourself, be true to yourself, be your own best friend. All man-centered, not God-centered. Everything is measured on a scale of personal happiness. How does it make me feel? What's in it for me? Even God is put on that scale. And people shop for churches based on what's in it for me. Well, how do I feel? Was it my personal pleasure ratio for the day? Rather than the motive of the fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, that the world may become guilty before God, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by law is the knowledge of sin. That's the verdict, man. Pagan, moralist, religionist, all guilty before God. You're guilty. I'm guilty. The Pope is guilty. Billy Graham is guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Today, I was putting a load of laundry into the washing machine and taking a load out and putting it into the dryer. And, um, you know, I just, this is pretty obvious. There's three of us in our family. And I looked at all the clothes that were going into the washing machine that were dirty. And they were my wife's clothes. My son, he had a bunch of dirty clothes. Really dirty clothes. <laughs> and I had some too. There were all of us involved in that dirt. It's not like, well, you know, it's all their dirty clothes. I don't have any. I never get any clothes dirty. All of us had the same need. And I was doing that, and I was thinking of our text this evening. Yep. All pronounced the same verdict. Mankind has this horrible predicament. Now, between verse 20 and the next verse, verse 21, is a grand canyon. We move out of the night into the day. We've been slamming on the wrath of God. This is now the grand canyon. This is where the sun comes up, the light shines over the landscape, and it's flooded with bright light. Or in the words of the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read that terrific set of books, that long, dark, cold winter is over, and Aslan has come. In steps a whole new idea. It says, but now. Ooh, that's good after you talk about wrath. But now. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We now move in to the second phase of the book of Romans. First being the wrath of God. Second being the grace of God. And that's what he focuses on for the next several chapters. The grace of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse, some of you are not familiar with his name. If you do much commentary or Christian book reading from yesteryear, he's a familiar name. He was a pastor in Philadelphia, great Bible scholar. He wrote a heart. He drew a heart over these verses. He said, I'm convinced after many years of Bible study that these verses are the most important verses in all of Scripture. It's quite a statement. 
The great scholar Leon Morris said, this is the great paragraph, the greatest, most important paragraph ever written in history. So let's pay attention. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is being revealed, or is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? Law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And he will show that the law has a purpose, and the purpose has already been fulfilled to make us guilty, and to lead us to Christ. So we'll pick up on that next time. And um, we didn't cover it tonight, but we covered quickly in our reading a few very important words that to a lot of us still don't make much sense, like propitiation. In fact, there are three important words we're going to cover next week, have a little mini-theology course. Justification is one of them that he mentions. Redemption is another, and propitiation is another. These are very important words uh, let's not be afraid of words. Uh, some versions really ruin a good word. And, and we almost feel when we read them that we've, we're, we're attending the funeral of a very loved word. It is dead and gone out of circulation and we've replaced it and so we don't know what it means. There's some words that we need to keep and these are three of them and we'll discuss what they mean next week.